Hello there and welcome to the RTE Davis Now Lectures podcast, a reshaping of the iconic Thomas Davis Lectures, which considered the radio to be a university of the air, sharing the scholarship and thinking that makes sense of our present selves. I'm Cleonan Ianloon, its producer. The consultant editor of the present series on the subject of making home is Dr Ellen Rowley. Here she hosts a studio session with those who contributed to the series. This podcast is made with funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the Television Licence and academic partner University College Dublin. Hello there and welcome to this Davis Now Lectures studio session from the RT Radio Centre in Donnybrook, here in Dublin. I say where we are because the series has had many locations along the way, each in its own way reflecting an aspect of making home. This more functional space of the Radio Centre provides a suitable home to bring together the material and ideas of the series with all those who wrote and presented a lecture. The series has taken a look at parts and elements of the subject of making home through history, technology, theatre performance, economics and social policy, as well as through psychology and the design of home. Because, of course, any examination of a subject requires us to carve out a particular space within that subject, to set limits so that its exploration might make and say something new. So, With that in mind, the contributors were invited to make a new lecture for the series from the point of view of their own areas of knowledge, research and practice. And they join me now. Linda Doyle, Professor of Engineering and the Arts and the Dean of Research at Trinity College Dublin. Linda's lecture, Bricks, Mortar and Data, tackles technology as we move ever closer towards smarter homes. Rasha Gowen. Artistic Director at Arts at Min in London. Her lecture, Too Close to Home, considers home as a literal and imagined site in Irish theatre performance. Michelle Norris, Professor at UCD's School of Social Work, Social Policy, Social Justice. Unmaking Home, Homes for Shelter or Homes for Investment? Question mark is the title of her lecture. A lecture which questions the ever-shifting economic principles and political policies underpinning housing provision in Ireland. And Hugh Campbell, Professor of Architecture in the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at UCD. His lecture, Houses in Motion, Architecture and Patterns of Dwelling, situates house architecture in relation to other media, film, novels and photography. The home becomes a psychology of self. And I should say that if you missed any of these lectures or indeed if you want to give them a second, deeper listen, you'll find them as individual podcasts on the RTE website or wherever you get your podcasts. So we started the series with my own lecture entitled Clearing Hovels and Building Homes, an Architectural History of Housing in Ireland. This lecture brought us from the pre-modern cabin to early 20th century slum clearance projects. It tried to remind us that history, especially housing history, is continually happening. There may be a starting point, but there isn't an end. Let's have a listen to this. Well, for me, it changed a big life in my part of my life because I was used to, say, I was used to the tent and then I got into the wagon, then I got into a trailer and now I'm in a house. I'd rather, if my life was back, I'd rather live in in the tent. I'd rather live out my life outside, out instead of being... I think it's very closed in for travelling community. Don't get me wrong, the toilet is lovely and the hot water and the shower and the heat. But what, say, with our generations, it took so long to get a house. And took my family, my father and mother, they were didn't gone before, said they'd be nearly offered a place. Maybe from growing up, many of us would remember having one warm room in a house and then going to bed in a relatively cool, if not quite cold, bedroom. It probably going back to my college days when I was living in a freezing kip of a, of a house and that's what I used to be thinking, oh God, I can't wait to have my own place and I can put my heating on and, you know, not have to worry about, oh, the oil tank is, you know, nearly empty and having 10 layers of clothes on. 
lot of younger people growing up, coming up, they bought houses, they, you know, big mortgages, the whole lot. They're not prepared to rough it for a while. You know, they won't sit in the crate like you're walking across a bare concrete floor for a couple of months. They, they tend to live beyond their means. My place is in a very bad condition. There's rats coming up to my floor. The floor is completely rotten and it's gone and it's all mildew on my walls. I was in hospital for nearly six months with pneumonia and brown cohes in and out. I am looking at the council for to get another home off of them. I'm fighting for one for the last five, for the last six years and I can't still get nowhere with them. This is Nakhlesheen Accommodation Centre within the recreation room where we live in the blocks that are here. I would not want my kid to grow up in such a place. It's, oh my God, it's, it's, it's unthinkable. Look at, if you look at this place, they are confined into a, a, a place. They can't, all they see is potter cabin. If you live here every day of your life, the same thing you see, like four or five years, coming out, seeing the same thing, the same thing, the same routine, is crazy. Those voices there, specifically I'm struck by how rising standards of living drive housing to change its form and the woman moving from tent to wagon to trailer to house. I wanted to ask Michelle Norris, you're immersed in the economics of home. Well, I was really struck by the sheer breadth of the period you examined, Ellen, back from the mid-1800s. Also, over that whole period, what really struck me were the points you made about the tension that's existed over that period between the preference for the individual home and the lack of preference for communal living in the form of flats or apartments and the stigmatisation of that form of housing. So you discussed how, in terms of our way of living in this country, we've moved from living in well, mud cabins in the countryside and people aspiring to having cottages, a lot of them provided by the, the government under the Labourers' Cottage Scheme, people aspiring to having their own farmhouse. And then in as the 20th century dawned, we saw the big Georgian terraces lived in by the gentry in urban areas recreated for people with lower incomes, but in, in similar but smaller form, terraced housing. And then in terms of the history of communal living, back since the poor law introduced in the mid-1800s has been stigmatised in this country and, and associated with the poor. And you trace through the medium of architecture, how communal living uh, in the poorhouse relates to communal living in Magdalen laundries, about the kind of stigmatisation of the flats complexes which were built to yes. clear slum housing, mm -hmm. um, which is also stigmatised in Dublin, even though they were a huge improvement on what came before. It really struck me how these debates are still going on and still so relevant to the issues we've been discussing, um, for instance, in the recent election. So in, in many ways, we're still very wedded to our preference for the individual house and owning the individual home. But particularly in urban areas, that model has become economically so much more difficult for house, households to aspire to yeah. as they can't get mortgages and builders can't or claim they're having trouble building individual houses to sell. And there is a really significant backlash against the alternative, the communal alternative that's been offered to us. Yes. And I think a lot of concern among the public about co-living, apartment blocks being built and bought by international investors, international pension funds, and still a feeling that this is still not a better alternative right, than having yeah. your own home on your own land. So what we see there is history having remarkable resonance with where we are today and the circularity of history. And I suppose you're constantly bringing us to today because of your work uh, informing public policy. Linda, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, I mean, this this might seem like a bit of a trivial comment, but uh, when I was listening to the clips, it brought back a memory and apparently my father's uh, very romantic proposal to my mother when he asked her to marry him was, I've been looking at houses and I kind of think that that summarises <laughs> an awful lot of, of kind of what Michelle was talking about, the understanding of kind of I'm now capable of getting married because I can offer this house and how mm -hmm. that's actually disappeared. So mm -hmm. I just found that very evocative. Let's listen to more voices. Here are some reactions to ideas around technology and the future home, an area covered in your lecture, Linda. 
which was called Bricks, Mortar and Data. Home is the centre of your universe. The place that when the, the door closes, that you can kind of go, ah, I'm home. It's your sanctuary. Hi, Mom. The thing that makes our home a sanctuary has got nothing to do with technology. I'm very, very wary of certain apps and your phone and more devices and apps to, to help make our lives easier. I don't think that's really the case. The Alexa from Amazon, that scares the hell out of me. Siri scares me as well. It's the whole concept of devices listening to you, going with your commands. But they will know everything about your life. They will know everything that you do inside that house. It can't end well. In the house of the future, there could be holograms of great stuff. Some things would actually have to be real furniture, but um, the real furniture would come from the past, so they wouldn't have to chop down as many trees as they do to make furniture. And then you would have the walls, the lights, all of that would be hologramic. They'd just be like a really flash um, in the hologram. Certain things I might embrace. Ability to, for instance, turn on heating, I think, is very useful. The ability for your fridge to tell you if you're nearly out of milk is uh, madness. People should be into basic things like that to understand them themselves. They shouldn't need technology. I did have electric gates at one time, but I had them taken out. And I had them taken out because they cost an absolute fortune to maintain. They were always going wrong. I decided that they weren't actually worth it and they were making me very lazy. You know, you just flick a button to open your gates. What on earth would my parents have thought of that? I wouldn't be anti the technology per se. I just don't see that I'd ever have a use for it. The, the most recent television, you can tell it to change channels. I still use the remote control, which I suppose <laughs> when I was growing up, we didn't even have one of those. We had to walk over and press the button. <laughs> and there was only eight buttons <laughs> even less channels yeah <laughs> I think uh, there was four of them with nothing and uh, two of them were repeats of the RTE 1 and RTE 2 <laughs> further up the list of eight yeah it'd be more of an intelligent home washing machines just they would use um, less washer and you would have a, a minimum number, number and a maximum number so it could clean as much as possible with as less water as possible. So it'd be a big saver of water. I'm, I'm reminded of our own house in the 1980s, in the 90s indeed, where we used to push our seats right up to the television and use a golf stick mm. and push the golf <laughs> stick against the, the remote control or against the television in the absence of remote control. We were much crueler. My youngest brother was the remote control. <laughs> <laughs> he was very obedient to have to say, though. Has anyone much else bitter. got re reactions to that, which really reflects the full gamut of opinion on mm. technology it affects us all? I mean, the kids were way more optimistic yeah. in their view of the future and of technology and that they were linking it to the environment. Linda Doyle, your lecture, Bricks, Mortar and Data, touches on quite a bit of what was said there. I think those answers actually were fantastic. They reflected the suspicion of, of technology. They reflected the embracing of technology. And I, I completely agree with you. It was really striking that the kids link the power of technology with the power of a better future and especially a better future in terms of environment. And I think they also reflected really simple things like uh, the difficulty of maintaining technology and that it can go wrong. For me, though, a lot of the comments were based around physical stuff that you can see. And the kind of thing I'm interested in is how technology is there and you actually don't know it's there. One of the comments was about, um, you know, I don't think I'd need those kind of things. But whether that person likes it or not, technology is acting on them all of the time. So I suppose if I had more time in my lecture, I'd have liked to gone into the invisibility mm -hmm. of the technology that's around mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. in the wider built environment outside yeah. of the home. And I think you were very clear and it was chilling for me and you continue to be obviously around the responsibility that each one of us as individuals has uh, in terms of getting on top of our technology, understanding it. I think absolutely. I, I'm an engineer, but I think you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a computer scientist, but you actually have to be technically literate in the world that we live in today. It matters to democracy. 
I think it matters in kind of exercising your voice and, and actually being able to talk about the kind of world you want and don't want. Hugh Campbell, as an architect and someone with a long view of the environment, of the home, affecting who we are on several levels, what did you take from Linda's lecture? It was this question about when you inherit a house, do you want to inherit an experienced house? In, in other words, a house where mm-hmm. the data has built up as a sort of cumulative wisdom and that you might have the choice of resetting to zero, so to speak, the house in terms of its latent intelligence or of taking on a wiser house. Linda, could you explain that point about a house full of data? Your house, a smart house, uh, as we kind of understand them, is constantly gathering data about you and the people in the house, I suppose, to the end of making your life in the house easier. So you don't actually have to tell your heating to turn on at a particular time or turn off at a particular time. It knows your behavioural patterns and it responds. So, So where that's coming from is if you live in a house over a long time, and it increasingly gathers more and more data about you, whether it's about practical things, whether it's about your health, whether it's about entertainment, that house is kind of weighed down with knowledge and wisdom of your occupancy of it. And I think that's where Hugh has been taking up. Yeah, so the house is experienced. There's something kind of scary about that idea (laughs) about moving into that or even that the house knows something about you. But there's also, we're used to the idea of memories accreting in the in the physical in the walls in the spaces in the furniture even and that that might be something desirable in some way a house that has age it has some kind of quality but the idea that that might inhere in the data i thought was uh, particularly interesting and that this kind of back and forth between technology and architecture in terms of house is a constant i was actually reminded of rainer bannum who was an architectural historian from the 60s who had this famous piece called uh, a home is not a house, where he was looking at how, with the development of technologies of that era, like the hi-fi, the refrigerator, all these amazing kind of equipment, why then, if you had all that equipment, would you actually need a physical house, other than he had an illustration of himself naked inside of an inflatable bubble, you know, that that was it, and then you had all your precious equipment in the middle of it. <laughs> and that that it was a sort of provocation One of the things that's interesting to me is that the sort of lag that exists, people very readily embrace the latest phone, TV, car, I think still, even with the suspicions that we heard in the clip there. But house or homes remains a little bit resistant to that. And again, we hear that in the clip there. There's a sort of divide that people have in their minds between technology as and even the sorts of invisible data that you're talking about. That's fine in a phone or in a, a watch or in a... But a house has, to, a be house a has to be a something else. Steadfast, static, mm. it's to somehow resist that. Thing. Yeah. Mm. Rosh, you wanted to come in there? I was just going to say, it's kind of like the supernatural in a way, this idea mm. of like, you know, when we think about an old house that has character and the ghosts and like the creep in the in the staircase at four o'clock in the morning. But that uh, the idea of if you inherited somebody else's, the technology that accommodated their ways of behaving and how it is quite a supernatural proposal, mm. this idea of, of habits and behaviours and how they become psychogeographic yeah, or yeah. something, Embodied. you know. Sure. Yeah. Michelle, you wanted to come in there. Experiments in housing technology historically have often proved very problematic. I mean, mm. the, the big example is high rise dwellings in, in Western Europe in the 1960s, which mm-hmm. we're now we're now paying to pull down and, and rebuild in the, in the social housing sector. But equally, a lot of people within their memories will have heating schemes in the 1970s that blew hot air into your house and then blew germs around the house and things like that. So I think in, ter- in terms of housing, there's more of a resistance to new technological developments because oh, you know it's something <coughs> you're, you're the, going to have to invest in the over the long term. To, it takes, I think it takes a while to find the balance. Like, I mean, the early versions of the vacuum cleaner, for instance, the idea was that there was one central point. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, yes. in the 1930s the and 40s. Into, yeah. And then yeah. you stretch the cleaner. And it took a while to kind of think maybe that's not the best way of doing it, you know. And then so technologies take a while to find their best fit. Like any of these things, many people have fantastic ideas before the technology exists mm. to actually implement those ideas or certainly before the technology exists in an accessible and cheap enough format that it can actually be widespread. And I think you see that time and time again in history where where people actually your mobile phone 
People thought about that in the 50s and 60s, long before all of the technology exists to create the cellular networks that we have now. The the thing that's outstanding with your piece and that has been drawn out by everyone on the panel and the voices is this business of surveillance and the owner non-private. And as Michelle points out, the younger generation don't seem to even mm. question that and the older are deeply suspicious of that element of it. And that's where the ethics comes in. It really, isn't it? I do think that's generally true, that the younger generation have grown up in a public space of social media and sharing every thought and idea you have in your head. But I think you are noticing a shift now where people are, are beginning to question. And you see people doing things like using alternative search engines to Google so they don't leave traces of themselves. You do pe- see people talking about the issues that come up around privacy. And I think every every week that goes by at the moment, somebody rings to ask, will you be on a panel about ethics and data and algorithms? It's just a much more topical uh, conversation, which is to be welcomed. Yeah, to place the home in the middle of that discussion. Richard Sennett, the sociologist or philosopher, whatever you might call him, has written a book called The Rise of the Intimate Society or it's, it's a way of thinking whereby we're actually at our most public in our behaviour in the private mm. space of our house because in the city we're so controlled. It's the public space, but we're at our most private. We go in on ourselves, we walk quietly in a straight line, preferably not trying to bump mm. into anyone. So there is that really jarring thing yeah. with the domestic space. It is our most public realm as well. It is. And I think there's always been a very interesting swapping. So the phone at one stage was outside the home where you had to go somewhere to make a phone call. And then it became part of our home. And people, some people might remember, you know, the long time you had to wait to get a phone in your home. And they were just inside the front door. They had a separate cabinet, didn't they? Exactly. A closet, really. Yes. And they were stuck to the wall or, or or to the table. And then I think through the advance of the mobile phone, the phone moved back outside the house again. And I think this kind of swapping between the public and the private and the intimate and where the intimate happens mm-hmm. is something that we hear on the bus often. OK, Hugh. Well, I mean, I was it. just going to say that the rise of broadband and the way that broadband enables lots and lots of different things to happen simultaneously in the house. I mean, it's a small point, you know what I mean? But everybody is off doing. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. constant of all the ads for broadband, isn't it? Mm-hmm. it? That enables everybody to do something different at the same time. To be separate. To be separate. But and then to but be linked to other communities mm-hmm. outside the house, usually, mm-hmm. you know, through social media or whatever it is. The, the, the house is very, very porous, you know, all of a sudden. It's connected into other houses where other things are going on in a way when there was one phone line you know, your sister stayed on for an hour or whatever, that wasn't possible, you know. So that's it. So that is the unprivate house. Um, It has often been said, and indeed it was remarked upon by one of the audience members following the lecture relating to theatre performance, that the Abbey players, that's the actors of the National Theatre as it was, must have been the best fed actors in the world because every play of theirs seemed to be set in a kitchen. So let's have a listen to this. The penny hat and drop that the setting is always a, a home during a play, yeah. You can go ahead and wreck your life, but you can do it on your own. Once that's a lot has been demolished, I will be gone to hell out of this house of yours forever. And don't think I won't. I suppose it's where, where most drama happens, either in your home or somebody else's home, which is probably actually why I wanted my own place. No drama. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose I was on stage for 25 years and it was only then I started doing the sets. Let's have a look at this now, see how... Basically, you're looking at the sitting room come kitchen of a 1940s, 1950s house. Pre-electricity, and you've got the bellows, the fireplace. Which is white washed, it would be totally different to see. It's all white walls and then the black around the fire. It would be more into character then and we'd have things up on the shelves and... So, Brida, open the door, should be a latch, right? And we'll see you picking up the bucket. Mary! What's keeping up there, girl? That's when here actually it's Pet's Island. It's actually genuine antique, isn't it, Pet? Your little well, island. The old stuff here is, is yeah. genuine, it's yeah. Little, lamp. little second hat lamp. The old island ones that we used to have at home years ago. And you see that blower there? That's an old Pierce blower. This play is set in the mid 50s. And you'd be amazed at the number of people that'll be sitting down below there. And they looked up at the fire, the old fireplace, and they see no blower. They'd say, these guys don't know what they're at. And the same applies to everything else you see around there. That's the bastable for breaking the bread. That's the skillet where the spud used to be boiled. You'll have the cows ruined, like, 
like all the customers we have. And it is all about attention to detail. You know, the lads are putting the skirting board on the, the, the bedroom door walls outside of the doors that you don't even see. So they open for a split second, but they know that I like my skirting boards. So they're, yeah, so it's right. It's, it is. It's down to the detail. But you feel like you're a voyeur looking in through a wall that doesn't exist. So instead of building a set, we want to put the house in there and take out a wall, the fourth wall for the audience. When that is out, you're almost given a sneak vision into their lives. I'm here in studio with Linda Doyle, Michelle Norris, Rasha Gowan and Hugh Campbell. And we're here to reflect upon some of the ideas and subjects and elements that made up our Davis Now lecture series Making Home. So we were just listening to aspects there of home in Irish theatre. And Rasha, you delivered a lecture in Donegal entitled Too Close to Home, which captured key moments in your own practice. Um, as a writer, producer, and also key moments in terms of your appreciation of theatre and home in theatre as an audience member. How, what did you think of those clips there? I kind of think they're where my lecture starts, I suppose, in this idea of typical, dare I say, cliched idea about what Irish theatre is. And, and that being maybe about a nostalgia for a time that's over or maybe a time that never even existed. When I was delivering my lecture, what I was thinking about is the idea of experience being the thing that people look for the most in terms of a live moment or um, a theatrical moment. Like, why would you bother leave your house anymore um, to go and see anything, particularly if you're going to sit in a drafty hall in an uncomfortable seat? Well, you go because you want to experience something with other people. You want to feel connection. You want to feel like you're in real time experiencing something that will never happen again. In the case of the stage Irish play and how it exists and still is really, really strong in um, the amateur circuit, I suppose, in Ireland. I'm sure there are lots of people listening who are members of amateur dramatic societies who might disagree with me, but that kind of work is really for them. It's for the participants. It's for the members of the dramatic society because it's about that idea of what we might make together and in making those um, kind of traditional play sets on the kitchen and everything. It's kind of an act of collective remembering maybe. Yeah, right. Okay. And c- certainly the way they were they were talking about the construction of the yeah. set, they were there making, as, as Iqua said, the fourth wall. There was emphasis on yeah. the skirting board. I'm particularly fond of the skirting board myself <laughs> in terms of a piece of authentic home, right? You really, are talking about that fourth wall going. Do you know, we can pretend like that we're in a kitchen in the 1950s, but we all know we're not. And we all know that we're in a room and that, you know, the set is made of MDF and we can see that it's uh, tremoring slightly when somebody closes a door. That in itself is interesting. Like, why as humans do we do that? Why are we interested in coming together and imagining a time uh, that's past? What is the connection that we're looking for? Why as Irish people are we interested in the hearth and the home place and that idea of the creation of identity? And so I suppose that's what my lecture was trying to explore. And then looking at for the generations that have come after that John B. Keane-esque idea of the Irish hearth and home place. Uh, what is our connection to identity now and how do we find that and what does home mean for us now and and if we take it out of that uh, staged setting what where do we find it now and where do we find that that place where we meet and connect with each other i'm i'm spotting now a thread or a seam through the lectures because of this conversation that dawned on me on one level with my own stuff as in we've this yearning for the individual home, the whitewashed mm. cottage, that in wooming and aspirational space I talked about. Hugh then relates back to Linda's talking about how we're very willing to pick up a mobile phone to technologise our car space. But there's this reticence around the home because it's the traditional bastion of the bygone era, nostalgia. Um, and now through Rasha's discussion in response to those clips, we're hearing how home in theatre is the traditional that mm-hmm. this this thing Linda Rosh's lecture took the idea of theatre off the stage and out on location what stayed with you it made me really really much more interested in the liveness that you speak mm-hmm. about I felt very enthused about that I actually thought you, Arash, I had some great phrases. One of my favourites was about uh, the current generation having a deep distrust of fixed ideas and fixed mortgages. Mm-hmm. I have to say that we're, there were moments like that that really, I think, uh, are really fantastic. But particularly interested in where you spoke about the role that audience plays when you actually bring theatre 
out of the traditional theatre and into the home. So there are two artists that I really like, uh, Fiona Rabi and Anthony Dunn, and they did this amazing piece ages ago called Placebo. And in that, they actually built what they called electronic pieces of furniture and they got various people in different homes to look after that furniture for a certain amount of time. And the purpose of this was, as they said, to elicit stories about the furniture in the house. And one of my favourite pieces is where they gave somebody an electronic table that had a GPS in the middle of it and it told you exactly where the table was. But if the table couldn't find a GPS satellite, it would say lost. And the family looking after the table got very upset when the table was lost. (laughs) And before they went to bed at night, they had to bring the table out in the back because in the back it actually could actually connect with the satellite and it wouldn't be lost. Mm. And I was trying to think about myself, is is that a performance? What Mm -hmm. is that? And in one sense, there isn't an audience. There is just those people who are there on their own. And I was kind of curious to know what you think, Rasha, about those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, who's to say that that's I guess they're there and they're they're the audience <coughs> receiving that that like kind of digital performance. And I think anything that makes you see, see the environment in which you live, like in a different light or makes you see something as if it's brand new for the first time is for me what makes, I guess, art exciting. I mean, you know, that idea that you would like it's a table, but it's not a table. Yeah. It's a table, but it's more than a table. And actually, I look at the table and I see it in a way I've never seen it before. Like that's kind of exciting I suppose you know when I uh, talked a little bit about the home theatre project in Blanchardstown in um, my lecture and this idea of um, the gentleman from Blanchardstown talking about welcoming people into his house and then going and seeing the group of older men having a cry like as they were sitting in the living room hearing the stories from his life made them think about their own lives and there's something about that idea of a simple quotidian thing a table a very normal life in Blanchardstown and that idea of if you put a frame around it if you if you place a kind of performative space around that it makes you see it in a way that you'd never seen it before it's about defamiliarizing the familiar yeah, yeah. in fact it was your it was the home in Blanchardstown that made me exactly think of this yeah. piece and that's why I, I I suppose I wanted to bring it up okay we have a series of voices now talking about home its purchase its rental and what lies between we moved around lived with different friends or acquaintances at various points and I probably lived in at least God if I look back maybe seven or eight different places I also felt we were just there temporarily like we were paying rent so therefore it was never likely to be a home it was only ever temporary I, I got married and then now we with myself and my wife we have a mortgage and we have a feeling that it's something that we own and it's ours and it's a different feeling I even remember when I was in college and be sharing with the lads and, you know, they'd be thinking about their going around and maybe travelling the world for a year or two. And I was thinking about deposits for houses and that was that was just something that I always wanted. I always wanted my own house. I might say, look, it's probably worth around 200 now, but within a couple of months it's going to be worth around 220. And they may might even disagree with me and say, oh, no, I wouldn't sell it for less than 250. So they would be ahead of the market, but the market would catch up with their price eventually. I mean, when I was looking first, it wasn't, I wasn't even making it towards the end line at all. Like, I mean, the, as I was saving, the, the prices were just going up and up and up at such a rate that probably in hindsight was a good thing for me because I'd have jumped in the deep end, you know, with everyone else if, if I was given their mortgage approval at the time. At the end of the day, you can't tell people what to do. I couldn't anyway because I'd be working for the vendor. But I, I might have suggested to people at times that their other houses may be cheaper, but if somebody has their mind made up and that's what somebody wants for it, they're buying that. So I suppose ended up owning property accidentally with uh, three other, two other guys. It was cheaper to actually get a mortgage than and buy a house between the three of us than to stay paying rent. And then after that, we ended up buying another house between the, the three of us. <laughs> I suppose in some ways we started getting greedy at that stage. It's a true story, uh, landlord from hell. And I was dealing with him up until the point he texted me at 21 on a Thursday evening to a five word text. I'm moving in or you've got a month to move out. That was it. He hasn't registered us with the PRTB. He hasn't gone through any of the correct channels. We were in a housing crisis in August 
and we just had to take it. Like uh, Eventually, we all went our own ways and ended up with the both properties being rented out. When you get a good tenant, uh, it isn't bad actually having property. When you get a, a not-so-good tenant, it's a complete disaster. A lot of doors broken, cupboards of the kitchens, uh, refuse in the hot press, refuse all over the place, um, beds destroyed, nearly everything destroyed in the property. That was tough and that was the, the point where it was, no, this isn't worth it. I am extremely concerned about young people going to college, the amount of money they have to pay out for living in a box, really. And I'm talking from experience from my own grandson. Are they ever going to get on the property ladder? Does it actually matter if they don't? But what does matter is that housing is not so expensive that they can't even afford to rent somewhere to live. There, that reminds us really of how Michelle Norris's lecture, Unmaking Home, Homes for Shelter or for Investment, question mark, really did break things down to houses or homes as commodities or homes as homes, places of shelter and nurture. In the context of those clips, what would you say, Michelle? I suppose the clips just illustrate the profound stresses people face in terms of trying to finance housing themselves and to to pay for housing and how that shapes all other aspects of our lives in terms of our quality of life, in terms of the money we have left over pay, to pay for other things. This may seem like an obvious point, but finance and money is so central to housing. We, we know that intuitively from living our own lives, but in terms of the economy, in terms of how governments put housing in place... Finance is much more central than, say, other services governments provide, like health, because housing is what economists call a lumpy good. So, in other words, you have to pay upfront in a big lump of money a for housing. A lumpy good. Yeah, in a, in a way that, say, you don't when we fund the pension scheme and we pay pay it off. And one of the things that struck me from from listening to your lecture, Ellen, on the kind of architectural history of housing and were some connections between the points I made in my lecture about policy and about um, the economy and how housing is financed because how we pay for housing has a huge impact on the types of housing we live in, both in terms of whether it's rented or owned, but also in terms of its built structure. So Ireland and Britain both had a similar banking system because we were part of the UK and that banking system was based on deposits because Britain was, was a wealthy country and people saved their money and they put their money into banks and the banks lent people money and that funded mortgages and that funded home ownership. And that also enabled... So would that then privilege home ownership? It privileged home ownership but just also made it possible and also made the single family dwelling model you mentioned possible because people got mortgages to build individual homes and the banking system facilitated that. Whereas other countries in continental Europe that weren't as wealthy 150 years ago didn't have deposit-based banking systems because people didn't have enough money to save deposits. And they had bond-based banking systems. So the banks raised bonds or loans on markets and people bought them, individual investors bought them. And that actually enabled the construction of apartment blocks because big landlords raised bonds and built apartments in Paris, etc. And then Ireland ended up with something kind of in the middle. We had this deposit-based banking system because we were part of the UK, but we were quite a poor country and quite a lot of money was put into UK banks rather than Irish banks. So we had difficulties actually lending enough for mortgages. So we didn't have bonds. We had no big investors building apartment blocks. We had this deposit-based banking system, but they had difficulty actually funding mortgages for individuals. So the state stepped in and provided mortgages for huge amounts of people in the past. And a lot of the issues people raised in the clips now about the struggles they face in terms of trying to get a mortgage, trying to save, trying to pay rent, actually reflect the breakdown Mm. of that system. So government doesn't provide mortgages anymore but the banks aren't providing mortgages to many people. And we don't have this very long tradition of a strong uh, rail-regulated private rental sector that continental Europe 
developed because they were building apartment blocks 150 years ago and people are now caught in that tension. Yeah, and I, I think if anything came out of, of those clips and of mm-hmm. the experience today um, is this crisis in renting. Rasha Gowen, in terms of Michelle's lecture, there's mounds of material and so it's so much the stuff of real life that you've mined in your in your work in, in theatre mm. performance and, and such. Well, I was utterly fascinated by Michelle's lecture and the urgency of it in, in terms of understanding where we've come from and why we are where we are was really um fantastic it felt like you know dipping your head in a in a bowl of fresh water and it's like ah now I see but I would say like to be provocative um, you know Michelle posits this really interesting either or scenario this idea of, of w- within a welfare state that we had a welfare state that prioritised housing and now if a, a state that prioritises you could argue does it health and um, social welfare and education but I suppose for me, coming from the artistic side of things, in Ireland at the moment, in terms of the story that Michelle has told us, I think we have to take a leap to imagine a future in which the great things we achieved in the past might be possible again in the future. Thanks, um, Rasha. Hugh Campbell, you <coughs> well, want to, just to bring up something there? Just picking up on what Rasha is saying, and because Michelle demonstrated so clearly this trajectory that we were on from house being at the centre, the idea of that being valued in a certain way to being valued in another way, now we're at a place where People are recognising that imbalance and a need to do things differently, but maybe also the, the unpicking that would be involved in getting back to a different basis of finance, that it's incredibly complicated or it's going to take a long time. I actually don't think it's incredibly complicated okay. moving back to where <laughs> we were in terms of homes as not being valued primarily as commodities. Mm. But it does involve trade-offs and winners and losers. And my question is, are we willing necessarily to live with those those trade-offs? So in the clips, it was um, striking how uh, one of the, the people interviewed commented about how young people aren't willing to sit on orange boxes, make sacrifices necessary to buy a house that previous generations would. The kind of view that people can do without avocado and toast or sit on an orange box and that will enable them to buy a house nowadays is simply not realistic because a house is now so much more of a a multiple of average incomes Mm. than it was in the 1970s. Mm. And also in the past, uh, there were very, very generous government subsidies for house purchase that just simply don't exist now. And the beneficiaries of those, including my generation, have largely forgotten about them or deny they existed. But we have a situation where there is huge intergenerational inequality in housing and older people who bought houses when they were cheaper, their incomes were going up faster than inflation, so the mortgage became more affordable, which we don't have now. They're unwilling to pay the property taxes paid for in the past that would have funded social housing. Mm. And young people are paying just enormous proportions of their salary in, in rent and the disposable income they have left over after that is um, is very small. And they're not getting the breaks. Uh, it reminds me when you bring up the difference uh-huh. between the disparity between, say, buying a house in 1970 uh-huh. vis-a-vis 2020 or the time that we are in at this moment. It reminds me that I want to go back and listen to your lecture again and that really we all need to listen to your lecture again. But if anyone wants to listen to any of these lectures again, I want to direct everyone to the, there's an individual podcast per lecture. All of the Davis Now lectures in the Making Home series are available from the programme website or wherever you get your podcasts to access those. So for the final segment, I'd like us to think about how our environment affects us. So here are some ideas on how home impinges upon who and how we are. Let's listen to these. I'm following the old harvest milk cake, Mum's old recipe. Uh, I have to chop up the apples first very, very thinly. So I would be 10 years old and I'm walking in the door of my grandmother's cottage and the grandfather clock is chiming and I know I've come home. The smell of soda bread is baking and she has my favourite apple tart as well, so I know I'm being loved and looked after. Home for me is where I close the gate or close the door behind me when I go home. 
from that where I can do what I want when I want to do it. Might be just making a cup of tea, might be sitting down watching a film, reading a book. And at night time when I hear the rain hopping off the roof, I know I'm home and the rain is on one side of the roof and I'm on the other and I'm warm and dry and safe and all of my family are exactly the same way. If I have sadness, home is my home. If I have anything going on in my life, my home is my home. If I walk into another person's place, I know I kind of feel a bit out of space. When I walk into my own home, I can walk to my kitchen, I can walk to my range, I can do my cooking, my boiling. I can do my own talking and my own, sp- I have my own way of getting on in that way. Hello. When you leave your country and you leave all the people that you love behind, you are living with a dream so that you will go over and you will get a job, you will get money, you will pay your, your debts. Then after a while, life is just life. You start living like everyone else. Then, you know, the dream maybe of buying like a house, it becomes like, okay, I would like to buy a house here where I live. My life is settled here now. My children grew up in here. Myself and my husband, we, we bring up our children with the best of our culture and the best of the Irish culture. It's not just about my dream anymore, but it's the whole family. So I guess sentimental about bricks and mortar and stuff, but like um, you could take all that away. It's just the home is about family for me. So now listening to those clips, which were very atmospheric, um, Hugh Campbell, your lecture uh, in the series is entitled Houses in Motion, Architecture and Patterns of Dwelling. You were particularly keen in this lecture to discuss the film project, which is almost a domestic project, Roma, which is accessible on Netflix. By virtue of listening to the other lectures and being part of this conversation, I would have maybe wanted to come back a little bit more to the to the role of architecture um, because I talked a lot about in the lecture about I guess the feeling of home and how patterns of thought habits and so on are formed in the spaces and structures of the house but my but my focus was quite largely on the single dwelling and in terms of architecture I talked about extensions and the the small scale of the domestic but actually I think particularly picking up on Michelle's lecture and indeed uh, Linda's and Roche's as well that there is a need for architecture I think to act at a larger scale as well the forms of home, the forms of collective dwelling that have been talked about a bit, the way we structure our cities and settlements, those things are sit within the realm of architecture. Architecture does have a capacity to more systematically and at a larger scale invent new ways uh, of living. I mean it as a support to finding more affordable ways of living, finding ways of living uh, with less impact on the environment, all of those large challenges. If given the opportunity, I think architecture can respond to them and can make a huge difference. Your lecture, I, I noted um, a very interesting housing prototype, uh, the Alzheimer's Centre by Neil McLaughlin, and I just went inquiring into it, read what the architect uh, said about what he was trying to achieve, because I suppose I was curious, how is it that architecture could uh, help memory or you know and and so indeed in his in his discussion of what he was designing there he was trying to create coherent and calm spaces where they were two adjectives and and so much of what he said is what we all need mm. in our homes mm. um but but he he was suggesting that that architecture could aid in orientation but architecture could also encourage mobility and he made paths that looped around so you would arrive back somewhere so through, through design that it's possible to alleviate disorientation and confusion and aggression. This was what Neil McLaughlin was saying. But in what ways do you see architecture helping the conundrum we're in with our housing crisis? Well, I mean, first of all, I suppose I would say, uh, like a lot of people in the architectural profession, I, I mean, I, I feel a slight frustration that there's not more opportunities given to particularly younger generations of architects to to operate at a larger scale than at the scale of the individual extension. I mean, it is, it is slightly odd that so much architectural intelligence is trained on the back gardens um, of a relatively small slice of our population. While, and I'm not suggesting that architects have all the answers. I mean, I think it is actually about acting in concert with all of the mm-hmm. with the with the creative artists, with the economists, with the engineers and technologists. I mean, that with the actually, civil servants. Yeah, that architecture 
operates at the interstices of all of these forces that are shaping society. But it has something to offer into the mix. Um, and I think what it is is about making it is about making coherent environments within which we can live our best lives. And it is actually about assessing ways in which we are currently housed and, and diagnosing maybe aspects of those that might be done differently or better. I don't think it's about reinforcing patterns necessarily. I did talk in the lecture a little bit about the need sometimes to be liberated from patterns. Like I'm, in some ways, I'm as interested in leaving home as making home. That leaving home is often, for a lot of people, a very liberating experience. Mm -hmm. um, can I bring Linda, Linda Doyle yeah. into this conversation? Can I, I'd just like to follow up there and I suppose pose a question for you. And I often wonder, do architects engage enough with the digital? And I'm reminded, you you know this already, I have an, an obsession with Ray and Charles Eames and their 1952 film, A Communications Primer. Yeah. And they made that with the view to informing architects of the latest technology uh, in terms of communications technology at if the I, time. If I can interrupt, Ray and Charles Eames are a couple of uh, married uh, couple architects. Yeah, so Ray was an artist and Charles was an architect and they worked uh, together on many projects, I think from the 50s right up to the and, 80s. And actually one of the interesting things about them was that they, they made a house for themselves and then a house for their neighbour, but they actually didn't do much architecture at all yes. because they became much more interested in other media, film, yeah. exhibition. I think the Eames uh, back in the 50s recognised that architects needed to be informed about the latest advances in technology. So they were very influenced by, you know, Claude Shannon, who was probably responsible for everything we do in the digital world today and von Neumann and, and new advances in computing and new advances in, in, in communications. And one of the films I love, A Communications Primer, is made for architects by an artist and an architect about telecommunications. It stands the test of time. But I think the purpose, the purpose of getting architects more informed, I think we still need to do that. OK, thanks, Linda. We're coming to the end of this gathering. Michelle? What I was struck from the, the various lectures and inputs we've had to the series is that we have made choices as a nation. We have made choices to provide our housing, fund our housing, design our housing in certain ways in the past. We've made different choices now, but we could change those. Russia? Yeah, I would agree. And I think there is something about imagining a different outcome and this idea of the future not necessarily being written. And we're not, we don't exist in some sort of fixed moment in a future history. Um, things can change. And our approach to how we use technology in our homes, um, how we fund our homes is, is possible. Thank you, Rasha. Hugh? Just struck again by how complex and rich a word home is that it has aspects of the physical, the technical, the economic, the the imaginative memory, that everything is bound up in it. And that, I guess that's one thing that won't change. Linda? Personal reflection. When we started doing this, I wondered about the, the smart home technology episode. And when I listen to things like Michelle speaks about, and when you hear the clips about people struggling about housing, you wonder, you know, why that would be included in, in that kind of wider, I suppose, more serious context. But when I hear all of us speak, it makes me realise that if we want to understand and build the future we want, we do have to look at all of these aspects. That's it from us. My thanks to Linda Doyle, Rasha Gowan, Michelle Norris and Hugh Campbell here in studio, as well as to all those who attended the recording of the lectures and contributed such engaging comments and questions to the subject of Making Home. All of the Davis Now lectures in the Making Home series are available from the programme website and also as a podcast wherever you get yours. From me, Ellen Rowley, and all the contributors to this Davis Now Lectures Making Home series, thank you for listening. <laughs>